The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. We'll open your copy of Scripture and go ahead and turn to Amos chapter 8, verses 1 through 14. We are rapidly coming to uh, the place where Amos will be done. We'll end Amos next week. This morning we're going to cover the entirety of Amos chapter 8. So if you will go ahead and stand to your feet for the reading of God's Word. Again, we're not doing this standing to our feet as just a way to uh, just do a, a religious thing, but what we're trying to do as link heart and body together. We want our actions to be linked with our confession. It's a way for us to stand and show I'm honoring the Lord in my heart right now. So I'm going to read this in its entirety. Remember, one of my favorite reminders from the New Testament is that these are not the mere words of a man. These are the words of a man who is being carried along by the Holy Spirit. And this is what he has to say. A fourth vision a vision of a basket of summer fruit. Verse 1, this is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. Then the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, declares the Lord God. So many dead bodies, they are thrown everywhere. Silence. Hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff of the wheat. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their deeds." Shall not the land tremble on this account and everyone mourn who dwells in it and all of it rise like the Nile and be tossed about and sink again like the Nile of Egypt? And on that day, declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord." They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall turn to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. In that day, the lovely virgins and the young men shall faint for thirst. 
those who swear by the guilt of Samaria and say, as your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they shall fall and never rise again. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Sermon title this morning comes right out of verse 11 there, and it's this idea of a famine of the Word of God, a famine of the Word of God. The main idea that we're going to have laid on us from Amos chapter 8 this morning is this. The Lord is going to reveal the unavoidable consequence of judgment. When the Lord declares judgment must come, what are some of those unavoidable consequences that will come to an individual, that will come to a people, that will come to a culture, that will come to a nation when a nation, church, people, culture, individual decidedly concretizes their heart, hardens their heart against the word of God and the God of the word? What are those consequences? Amos 8 is a picture of what those consequences look like. So I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to ask that the Holy Spirit would come and empower the proclamation of God's word, and then we'll dive into Amos chapter 8 to see what God has to say to us. So let's pray. Father, we are asking you to do only what you can do, which is draw our hearts Draw our hearts to your Son. Draw our hearts. Exercise your sovereign power. Grant the good gift of the Holy Spirit to move in power right now for these next several minutes. Drench this time so that when we leave here, what we can say is, did not God open our eyes to see our need for the Savior? Did not God cause our minds to understand the things that were being spoken? Holy Spirit, I ask that you would do what the first part of your name is. You would make us more holy this morning as a result of hearing your word proclaimed. It's in the name of Christ the King that I pray these things. Amen. Well, it's pretty obvious that here we are in Amos chapter 8. And as the Lord continues to reveal visions to his prophet, we are now to the fourth of five visions that Amos is going to receive as he wraps up his book. And what we have here is the fourth vision, specifically a vision of a basket that is filled with summer fruit. Now, at first glance, when you hear this language, a vision of summer fruit, you might be like, okay, man, this is, this is going to be somewhat comforting. After all, a basket of fruit can be a refreshing gift to receive. Fruit picked in the summer would mean that it's ripe. It's ready to be eaten. Ripe fruit looks good. Ripe fruit tastes good. Ripe fruit is good for you. So on the surface this vision of summer fruit seems very different from the first three visions, the vision of locusts, the vision of fire, and the vision of the plumb line. But what Israel would come to find out, and what we are going to find out this morning, is that God was using this vision of summer fruit to actually give a glimpse 
of what the judgment to come would be like. Just like summer fruit is ripe and ready to be consumed, so Israel was a people ripe for judgment. Look at what Amos says starting there in verse 1. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. And so he said, Amos, what do you see? And he said, I see a basket of summer fruit. I love it. Simple, plain. We don't need to be unclear where God has been cl- has spoken and he is speaking clearly. But notice what the Lord says then. Then the Lord, Yahweh, he said to me, says Amos, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. What's missed in our English translations is a wordplay that is taking place in verse 2. A wordplay between two words that you would hear if you understood the original language of Hebrew. In the original language, the word for summer fruit and the word for end in verse 2, they sound almost exactly the same. So when Amos says that he sees a basket of summer fruit, chayitz, and God replies, the end has come, chetz, the original audience would grasp this play on words knowing the original language. So not only is the fruit ripe, that idea behind the summer fruit word, but then they would come to see that my people Israel is also ripe. The end has come. If you have the New International Version and NIV translation in front of you, they do a very good job of trying to pull that wordplay over into the English. Talking about ripe fruit and how now Israel is ripe for judgment. They are like that basket of summer fruit. In other words, what God is saying through Amos to his people is that Israel has passed the point of no return. And now payday has come. Says Yahweh, I will never again pass by them. Last week we saw Amaziah the priest decidedly reject God and his word, thus the God of the word rejected him ultimately giving Amaziah what he wanted. Now the same thing is playing out on a national level. A vision such as the basket of summer fruit is a warning against what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. Cheap grace. Cheap grace is something that was consuming the people of God. You see, the grace of God does not mean that we keep on sinning and then repent and go on to do the same things all over again. To operate this way reveals that we do not, in fact, understand God's grace. According to the Apostle Paul in the book of Titus, Titus chapter 2, Paul says it's actually the grace of God which trains us to renounce ungodliness, to renounce worldly passions, and to wait for the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. But for the people of Israel, grace was cheap. Grace was an excuse to keep sinning against God. You know that you are operating with a mentality of cheap grace if your mentality towards sin is, well, you know, God says he's just going to forgive it. I'm not going to fight against it. 
Yeah, you might lob an I'm sorry or a please forgive me up into the heavens, but there's no real heartfelt repentance in your soul when you run after sin. It's the argument at the beginning of Romans chapter 6 where Paul says if your mentality is I should sin like hell so that I can get as much grace as I want because grace abounds where sin is found. He says, no, 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 you've got it all wrong. Grace, he says to Titus, is actually the thing that trains you to fight sin, hate sin, put sin to death. It trains you to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. But again, for the people of Israel, the snapshot of the mentality of the people of Israel through the lens of Amos chapter 8 is that grace was cheap to these people. And they used grace as an excuse to continue in sin. So Yahweh speaks and he gives a picture of what the judgment to come will be like there in verse 3. He says, the songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day. So many dead bodies, they are thrown everywhere. Silence. The coming judgment in the picture that we see in verse 3 is a judgment that will be drastic. It's a judgment that will be marked by death and not life. Songs of worship will turn to mourning and then the silence of death will descend upon a people. If anything, the picture that we get in these first three verses, this vision of a basket of summer fruit and a snapshot of the portrait of the drastic judgment to come, it should prompt us to ask a question. What is the quality of the fruit of my life? Remember, we were seeing a fruit being produced in the lives of these people. But the fruit that was being revealed was that it was a fruit born out of the soil of cheap grace. So it should prompt us to ask the question, what's the quality of my fruit? This vision reminds us that God deals with us as his vineyard, and as his vineyard, he expects fruit from us. Fast forward into the New Testament and the upper room discourse where Jesus is talking with his disciples hours before he is crucified on the cross. John chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, Jesus said to his disciples, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So ask yourself, is the fruit of your life full and sweet? Is the fruit of your life being evidence that you are planted in the fertile soil of costly grace? Or is the fruit of your life decayed? Is it rotten, having been planted in the soil of cheap grace? The indictment from Yahweh in these opening verses of Amos chapter 8 is that Yahweh's people fall into the latter. They had become partakers and peddlers of cheap grace as evidenced by their fruit. 
whether individually or corporately, if you've ever wondered what this fruit could look like, then we should look no further than verses 4, 5, and 6. If you're trying to wrestle with, well, what are some of the fruits that will be displayed in the life of an individual, displayed in the life of a church, displayed in the life of a culture, displayed in the life of a nation that has sold its soul to cheap grace. Amos, through God, says, here's a snapshot of it. It's in verses 4, 5, and 6. In that day, he says, those who will be consumed like ripe summer fruit are those who oppress others. Verses 4 and 6, they are those who trample on the needy, bring the poor of the land to an end. Those who, verse 6, buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff of the wheat. It will be a people who bear the fruit of a pseudo-religion. People who cannot wait for all this religious stuff to hurry up and end so that they can get on with what they really care about. They ask the question, when will the new moon be over? When will the Sabbath finally come to an end? When you find yourself saying, man, can the preacher man hurry up? I've got stuff to do in my life today, thank you very much. You see, they're not bold enough to actually stop with the outward forms of religion. So they're going to still go through the actions of celebrating a new moon festival. They're still going to celebrate and go through the actions of attending the Sabbath day. They're still going to show up on a Sunday morning. They're still going to sing the songs. They're still going to go to community group. They're still going to walk through the door with their Bible in their hand. But as they sit in their seats, their heart and their mind are rapidly consumed with the thoughts of, will this guy please be quiet? I've got other things to do today. Thank you very much. I've got to get on to the business of doing real life. Thank you very much. So to ask, when will the new moon be over or the Sabbath end? This is the attitude of the hypocrite whose heart is not in what he is doing. Amos says at the back end of verse 5, it will also be a people, a culture, a nation, an individual who is marked by greed, someone who is greedy. It's the greedy who have no problem skimping the measure, boosting the price, and then cheating people out of their goods with dishonest scales. In other words, those who will be gathered like summer fruit, according to verses 4, 5, and 6, are those who love themselves supremely in place of God to the happy neglect of others. If you want to take that and shorten it down, it is this. Those who will be gathered like summer fruit are those who are consumed by the sin of self-centeredness. Self-centeredness will drive you to oppress others because it's all about you. The sin of self-centeredness will drive you to adopt a pseudo-religion so you can look good on the outside, but hopefully to get praises from others because after all, you are the center of the universe. The sin of self-centeredness will drive you to be greedy. It'll drive you to injustice. It'll drive you to treat others like trash. It'll drive you to orchestrate things in your life so that you are put on a pedestal and others are neglected happily. And when self-centered individuals who are bored with God and consumed with themselves 
begin to fill churches and line the streets of a nation, what you need to know is that they are flirting danger close with a sobering, sobering promise from Yahweh himself. A a promise from Yahweh to never forget the deeds of sin that are being committed. This is what you see in verses 7 through 10. It's a promise to never forget. Once again, the Lord swears by an oath there in verse 7. Do you see that? The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob. If you go back to chapter 4, verse 2, you see Yahweh swears by his holiness. You go back to chapter 6, verse 8, he swears by himself that this certain action will take place. But now in chapter 8, verse 7, he says, I swear by the pride of Jacob. Now, that's an odd turn of phrase, right? For God to swear by the pride of Jacob. But this odd phrase begins to make more sense when we ask ourselves this question. Who ought to be the pride of Jacob? Who should Jacob, the people of Israel, be boasting in? Who should they say, this is our pride, this is our joy, this is our pursuit, it is him It is Yahweh himself. That who is who ought to be the pride of Jacob. It should be the Lord God himself. It's the prophet Jeremiah who said, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. So for Yahweh to swear by the pride of Jacob is for Yahweh to swear once again by himself. He's saying, by the full measure of who I am in my perfections, in my holiness, all that I am, I am swearing by myself. He who cannot lie, I will bring this to pass. And as he does so, the sovereign Lord makes the solemn promise, surely, surely, I swear by myself, this promise will not fail. Surely, I will never forget any of their deeds. Verse 7. Friends, what you need to know is this. This is what judgment is all about. The biblical concept, the biblical understanding, the biblical teaching of judgment, this is what judgment is. Is all about. All of creation is held accountable to a just and righteous God, a just and righteous God who will not ignore or gloss over our sin. You see, you and I forget things all of the time, but God, He does not forget. He remembers everything. And one day we will answer for the wrongs we have done. This promise. This promise of I will never forget their deeds. This this promise is meant to be a sobering reality check. There is a coming day when no one will be able to hide before the perfect and holy gaze of a just God who sees everything and forgets nothing. You see, there is something God does not forget. Listen, there is something God does not forget. He will not forget the sins of those who stick to their wickedness and refuse to repent. 
Everything is remembered. Nothing is overlooked. Justice will be served by a just judge on that day. But listen to me, but listen to me. But praise be to God that there is something that God does forget. There is something that God does forget. He will forget the sins of those who do repent and who do turn to him to be saved. For thus declares the Lord, according to the prophet Isaiah, says the Lord, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Says the prophet Jeremiah, I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Listen, in the economy of God's redemption, forgiveness is forgetting. And for anyone who turns to God through faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sin, the promise of I will never forget gets turned into the promise of I will not remember. All to the praise of Yahweh's glorious grace. That's the grace, that's the mercy through Christ. I will never forget, gets turned into the promise, I will not remember their sin no more. But what Amos tells us in Amos chapter 8, he reveals that this place of forgiveness is the one place Israel is not. Instead of turning to God for forgiveness, they've turned from Him in hardness of heart. Therefore, the unavoidable consequence of judgment has got to come. It has to come. It's unavoidable. The picture is that of a culture that's completely consumed by the chaos of their God-denying decisions. Ever feel like you're part of a culture that is being consumed by the chaos of a God-denying decisions? In verse 8, the land which seems so secure is going to tremble. And those who dwell in it are going to mourn. He picks up a metaphor by making reference to a river in the area where he would know the Nile River. And he says, like the Nile River in flood stage, which brings upheaval and calamity as it overflows its banks, there will be similar kind of upheaval and calamity at the judgment to come. Have you ever seen a flooding river break its banks and just wreak havoc on everything that is just being consumed by the floodwaters. He says that's a picture of the kind of calamity and upheaval and disaster and destruction that's going to come on this final day of judgment. In verses 9 and 10, he continues on, and once more we see that Yahweh is the agent of destruction, the agent of judgment, the agent of punishment to come. For on that day declares the Lord God, the sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only son, and I will make the end of it like a bitter day. This isn't Amos in charge of this. This is Yahweh himself. Acting according to the justness 
that is to be rightly attributed to the God who is the judge of all the earth. But as Amos continues, he reveals that there is an even more devastating consequence of judgment to come. If you read verses 8, 9, and 10, and you're like, okay, this is big. Like, this isn't small. Like, this is going to be something pretty consuming. He says, you ain't seen nothing yet. There's going to be an even more devastating consequence of judgment than what verses 8, 9, and 10 are about. Namely, a famine. And it's going to be specifically a famine of the Word of God. Look at verse 11. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land. But you got to know this. It ain't going to be no famine of bread. It's not going to be a famine of, of water. It's actually going to be a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. The judgment reaches its climax in the stark conclusion that rejection of the word will result in withdrawal of the word. For a nation who commanded the prophets, do not prophesy, and for a priest who declared, do not preach, they now get their heart's desires. Do you see the irony here? They went through their lives looking at people like Amos saying, we don't want you to prophesy, prophet. Take you and your thus says the Lord and his words out of here. They looked at people like Amos and said, stop telling us what God says. And now they're actually getting their wish fulfilled. One of the greatest delusions embraced by men and women today is that continual rejection of God and His Word will somehow not result in God eventually giving us what we want. I think there's a delusion in our mind where we wake up day in, day out, week in, week out, month in, year in, saying, no thank you, God, to you and your Word. No thank you, God, to you and your Word. No thank you, God, to you and your Word. With the hopes that sometime, maybe 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years down the road, we'll all of a sudden need it and it'll just be there right there ready waiting for us. And I don't know when it happens or how it happens, but the scriptures give us pictures, Amos 8 being one, Romans chapter 1 being the other, where God, some point in time, his patience will come to an end, and he says, the thing that you have pursued habitually, day in, week in, month in, year in, decade, here you go. You didn't want me, and I'm cutting you loose, and I'm letting you have not me. Not because I am a vicious God, but because your heart is hardened, and I'm simply giving you over to the passive judgment of a living God. The passive judgment of a living God should sober us greatly. When I think on these things, some of the most sobering words in all the Bible are found in Romans chapter 1, where we read about God's eventual actions against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, how, and here's the phrase repeated three times in Romans chapter 1, how God gave them up to do what ought not to be done. God gave them up. God gave them up. 
And the thing is, when God gives us up because that kind of judgment is passive, we tend just to keep on traipsing through life. There's no fire and brimstone. We probably get a raise that week or whatever it might be. You know what I'm saying? It's just, we just keep on going, but we don't realize that we've been given up to ungodliness and the unrighteousness that we love so much. Sobering words, friends. We see in verses like Amos chapter 8 that the possibility of this happening, this possibility of God giving a people up to do what ought not to be done, it's just very much a reality. That's what's taking place in Amos chapter 8. The irony is that Israel will only come to appreciate what they had by the loss of it. By the time they realize what they had lost, it will be too late though. Verse 12, they shall wander from sea to sea, from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. Why? Because the famine has set in. The word's been withdrawn. And in that day, verse 13, even the young and beautiful, those are full of Vigor, the ones that you think would never faint, are going to faint for a thirst, but it's not going to be a thirst of food or a thirst of drink. They're going to faint for thirst of the word, a word thirst. They're going to faint for thirst of God, a God thirst. They're going to have these thirsts that they will not be able to satisfy because the very thing they said they did not want has actually been given to them. They didn't want it, and so it's like, here you go. You didn't want it, so I'm I'm not going to give it to you. It's just gone. But since the judgment is that they shall not find what they need to truly satisfy the thirst of their souls, they will then turn to find refreshment in the waterless wells of sacred and secular religion alike. That's what verse 14 is about. And because of this, says Amos, they shall fall and never rise again. Silence. Death. Death of an individual, spiritually speaking. Death of a culture who runs wholesale after not God and his word. The death of a nation who said, no thank you God. Enough times to where God said, there you go. Bottom line comes down to this, friends. The consequence of judgment is unavoidable. The consequence of judgment is unavoidable. For Israel, the cup of iniquity is full. Their wickedness, it is ripened. The fruit picked. And now the uprooting and the overturning is going to come. But notice this, that even... Heavy on judgment, yeah? (laughs) Or some of us feeling the weight of this one, like, okay. Like, wow, that was pretty dark. (laughs) Welcome to Sunday worship, everybody. You're right? Heavy words, but sobering words that we need to hear, okay? But even from the heavy words of judgment, the sobering words of judgment from Amos chapter 8, what you still need to know is that from this, even from Amos chapter 8, hope remains. Hope does remain. 
and hope remains for any who see judgment on the horizon and flee from the wrath to come. Why did the people find themselves as the basket of summer fruit in Amos chapter 8? It's because they saw the judgment on the horizon and they didn't care. Some of them were even unwilling to see the judgment to come on the horizon. But the picture that the scriptures paint for us is that for anyone who sees judgment on the horizon and flees from the wrath to come, hope remains. And the hope that remains is prefigured in the words of judgment that Amos gave us describing the judgment to come in verses 9 and 10. When Amos said that on that day, declares the Lord God, I'm going to make the sun go down at noon. I'm going to darken the earth in broad daylight. I'm going to make it like the morning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. If you notice that in verses 9 and 10, these details that are painted and given to us, painting the picture of judgment described by Amos, they are strikingly similar to the moment when Jesus Christ won our freedom from judgment on the cross. So you fast forward to the New Testament when Christ was crucified and day darkened at noon. What we discover is that this day of judgment prophesied by Amos turns out to be a day of judgment that fell on Christ in our place. By the end of that first Good Friday, it was indeed a bitter day. One where the promise of I will never forget any of their deeds came to pass as God's only son bore the just judgment for our sin. But praise be to God that the silence of death was shattered on that first Easter when Jesus was resurrected to newness of life, signaling once and for all the defeat of Satan the downfall of sin, and the death of death. You see, a phrase I heard earlier this week perfectly summarizes it all. And the phrase is this. Everyone will have a payday someday. Everyone's going to have a payday someday. And on that final payday, there will be no further call to repentance The word of the Lord, which had often called you to leave your sin and turn to the Savior, is going to be silent. And everyone whose name is not found written in the book of life will be thrown into the lake of fire. Revelation chapter 20, verse 15. So the question then is this. Will you be ready for Jesus? Or will you be ripe for judgment on that day? Will you be ready? Or will you be ripe? For some of us, we can respond to that question by saying, I will be ready on that day. Because as we sang earlier, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Brother or sister, Man, woman, boy, girl here this morning, how do you know you're ready to meet Jesus? If your answer is anything other than my hope is in Jesus, that is how I know I'll be ready to meet Jesus. My hope is in what he accomplished on the cross. My hope is in his victory over Satan, sin, and death. 
My hope is him and his blood washing me clean, atoning for my sins, redeeming me, making me right with God. Then you are not ready. In other words, you are ripe. You are ripe for judgment. But you don't have to be ripe for judgment outside of Christ on that day. You can be ready for judgment hidden in Christ by grace through faith. Will you be ready for Jesus or will you be ripe for judgment? Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would move in power and move in might through these things that have just been spoken. Heavy, heavy words indeed. But sometimes we need a heavy word to shake us and shock us from our stupor. Father, I'm asking that you would empower the words that have just been spoken. The words that we need to hear, would you make them land on us in such a way that they would just not easily slip, slide right out of our hearts and minds. Help us to respond to wherever you are calling us to right now. If it's some of us, it's responding for the first time in salvation. Would you Give us what we need to walk forward in obedience. If it's to go forward fighting sin in certain ways, help us to lean heavy on the empowering strength of the Spirit to make us holy and walk in holiness. Lord, it's in your name that I pray these things so that ultimately Jesus gets the glory and the honor. It's in the name of the King I pray. Amen.